into the community where they lived. And we went to their home and we were able to see what it was like for them to live at home and care for their children and really have discussions about what they really struggle with, things like housing, food, clothing, how hard it was to just get through daily life. Welcome to the Unforgotten Families podcast, an action-oriented community of hope, inclusivity, and compassion for all medically fragile families. This podcast was created to spread awareness, share solutions, and advocate for the needs of these resilient individuals. It's our hope that the information and stories we share will inspire and empower you to join us in advocating for these families and help to ensure that they are never forgotten. Hello, Tough Advocates. Thank you for joining us for our first episode of 2022. If you haven't yet, please subscribe wherever you're listening to help support this community. We have a lot of great things coming up this year, and we would love your support. We are very excited to start the year off by interviewing Dr. John Pope as our first guest. Dr. Pope is the Vice President and Chief Medical Officer for Honor Health Scottsdale and is the Director of Pediatric Services for their Scottsdale Shea facility, which is known to have one of the strongest neonatal ICUs in the state. For many years, he was the medical director for hospitalists at Phoenix Children's Hospital and was the former chapter president of the American Academy of Pediatrics in Arizona and is still a board member there. Dr. Pope has his doctorate in medicine from Dartmouth Medical School and also holds a master's in public health from the University of Arizona. He's recently been certified as a healthcare peer coach and a master certified physicians coach. Dr. Pope has centered his life and career around being of service and has made a big impact in the world of pediatrics. In this episode, Dr. Pope will share why pediatrics became his passion, and he'll share his personal experience and knowledge around supporting families and advocacy. Dr. Pope has been recognized as a top doctor by Phoenix Magazine and is a national speaker for pediatric conferences around the country. We are very grateful to have him here today, and we really hope you enjoy. Thank you, Tough Advocates, for joining us for another episode of the Unforgotten Families podcast. Today, I am so grateful to be here connecting with someone that I look up to and someone that I've learned so much from over the years, Dr. John Pope. Dr. Pope, thanks for joining us today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Before we get started, our first episode was with a friend of yours, who I would say is now a friend of mine, Katie Dombrowski. Yes. Dombrowskis. Uh, Dombrowskis. Dombrowskis. And uh, first, let's just say hi to her. Hi, Katie. Hi, Katie. Miss you. Can we just talk about how resilient she is before we even get started? Yeah, when, we were, when I was uh, thinking about this podcast, and as I've listened to all of the, the episodes, I think about her a lot. And Just like you said, you look up to me, I look up to her a lot. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times I I interact with people who are struggling. And I use her example a lot of how you can be strong and resilient. You can always get back to where you were or even beyond that. My goodness. I mean, I like just the way that she tells the story, it's almost like I just want to be like, do you understand though? Like, do you understand? I mean, of course she understands how much she's been through, but sometimes from the outside is where you really see it. 
Yeah, and she, I wanted to fill in all these details. And with a lot of these parents, I think we've, we've talked about how when they talk about their experience, it can be emotional, but a lot of it is, it was just another part of my life. It wasn't even a speed bump. Like we just pulled over and did CPR. But when Katie told her story, I'm like, there's so much more drama I could add to uh, to her story. But uh, it's just interesting to listen to that and and then think about some of the other things people experience along the way. And they, they don't bring it up, but there's other places, I think, where we could fill in those details and offer services and things uh, like what you're doing to really, really help families, some of those gaps. Well, I think uh, this conversation will help because, you know, all we're doing here is amplifying voices and really sharing what they go through because no one else is doing it. And we're trying to just make sure that people understand. And one thing that when I look at your background, you know, you're the chief medical officer at Honor Health. You are the pediatric director um, at Scottsdale Shea. You used to be the director of hospitalists over at Phoenix Children's. And when I met you, you were um, the president of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Yeah, the Arizona chapter, yeah. So pediatrics has been a huge part of your career. And I was just wanting to really understand, like, how has it been? How has it become, you know, such a big focus for you? Yeah, I think a, a lot for a, a lot of, um, I think a lot of pediatricians, but a lot of physicians, if you talk to them or doctors and other or nurses or health caregivers, they'll, they'll tell you since they were really little, they wanted to do it. And I think for me, I always wanted to be a doctor and really a pediatrician since I was really young, like, like, like five years old, maybe younger than that. And a lot of that is from experiences. When, when I was that age, I had a, uh, my older brother, Fred, who's a, a brilliant man. He suffered some burns when he was probably five and I was two. Just seeing the care that he got, I was very fascinated by it and just observing some of that. And he went to Shriners uh, Hospital in Boston and I saw what they did for him and for my family. And I think that had a big impact in me being interested in being in a caring uh, profession. And I think something I didn't tell you um, was when I was younger, a couple of times I had, I got stitches in my head. At that time, you didn't go to the ER. You didn't. You went to the pediatrician's office. So I remembered going to the pediatrician and him stitching me up and talking me through it and numbing it up and making sure I was comfortable and keeping my mother calm. For me, it got me more interested in being a doctor, being a, a pediatrician. And I think uh, then when I went to medical school, very early on, we had the opportunity at the time, it was an, sort of an experimental education where we were embedded with a physician in the community. And so I got, I went to Dartmouth up in New Hampshire and I was with a Dr. Hugh Bowers and I still remember his name. And he had a practice on the Connecticut River and it straddled Vermont and New Hampshire. And I went there every other Tuesday and worked in the office with him and he let me see patients, and uh, we went to hospital meetings together, and he really exposed me to family medicine and families and working in a community and going to the hospital and how he advocated 
for patients and families. So I really liked that. Probably it was the best experience of my medical school. And it was really a gift. Now I think uh, students, they get embedded very early now. But at the time, it was really, there were 20 of us that got to do it. And then when I did my residency at Children's Hospital in Philadelphia, when we did our clinics twice a year, we would go visit a family that we took care of in our clinic. And we would travel the way they traveled to our clinic. So we had to ride the bus into West Philadelphia into the community where they lived. And we went to their home and we were able to see what it was like for them to live at home and care for their children and really have um, discussions about what they really struggle with, things like housing, food, clothing for their children, heat, and then how hard it might be for them to travel to the clinic. And it helped us understand if they were late or one day they couldn't show why that might be. It gave you a much wider perspective of their life. And it wasn't medical stuff, really. It was just how hard it was to just get through daily life and the safety things. It was really a great experience. And I think doing that was, uh, again, another exposure for me that made me really want to, you know, take care of children and, and take care of the whole family and just understand that other level of where people are at beyond just having, uh, needing well care or having a, a sick child and how it impacts the whole the whole family. And I also got involved and helped create a, a homeless adolescent clinic. We went to the local shelters and reached out to teenagers that weren't getting care. And that was another community project we did where you, you understood what it was like to be homeless and how it impacts your health. So just a lot of those experience, experiences have led me to really be in service to children and families. It, it's something that, you know, I'm really proud of and something I'm really committed to. One thing I want to ask you, because when you talked about going into that family's home, for me personally, I feel like there was a garret before I walked into a family's home, like, you know, mm -hmm. and really experienced what a family went through. And then there was a garret after. So I'd love to know, like, if you can remember, like, what was one of your biggest takeaways, you know, walking out like the first few times of, of a family's home like that? I think the the biggest part was really putting yourself in their shoes and that like the medical visit really after that, it would shape my visit with people. I would try to connect in a different way with people and understand the bigger picture of taking care of them. So there's, you know, all the pieces we do with diagnosing and treating, but then it's, it's what are the other impacts that are going to impact their health or even impact the treatment that you're going to give them or what you're going to ask them to do at home? Can they fill the prescription? Can they stay on track with the prescription? When you go to their house and you see they're worried about shelter and food and safety, the last thing they're going to worry about maybe is the, the medicine for an ear infection or things that they need to do to follow up. So it changed how I treat people and understand where they're at and maybe check in with them in a different way to say, are we on track here? I had a visit the other day so I could, I would know which families might struggle more and I might call them or follow up or take that extra step to make sure that they can do what they need to do. Absolutely. 
And, you know, you have now, that was the very beginning of your career. And you've gone and went into pediatrics and all these different levels, both nonprofit and, you know, as a internal doctor and with the hospitals. What's what are some of the biggest struggles that you that you've seen for, you know, medically fragile families and families that you have I've heard you say living on the edge? Yeah, I think we've we've talked about that a little bit and as I've thought it through, it they end up being on the edge a lot of times in one way or the other. And what I mean about that is just some of the things that I just referred to uh, and I've heard from a lot of the families the struggles that they have with paying bills with transportation, with getting to appointments, having enough food on the table, the basic things in life. So either they are already living in poverty. So 18% of kids live in poverty as a baseline. And then when you look at minority groups, it's much more than that. And when you look at children with special health care needs, which the families that you talk to are probably in the more complex range of that group, they often, if you talk to them, they're, they're in that poverty range even more. Minority groups are. And also up to 11% of them, 10 or 11% have trouble putting food on the table. They'll say they often, sometimes or often don't have enough food to eat. About a third of people with uh, children with special health care needs have trouble, difficulty paying their bills, any bill on a on a monthly basis. So that's just in the general population. So a lot of people just sit there and then folks that have complex kids with complex needs, either they get to that place because you've heard how many people lo- lose employment, one of the parents can't work. So they, they end up there because of what happened with their child medically, or they're already there. And then this impact just accentuates those issues. So people live on the edge. Um, and that that's what I, that's just how I say it, because I, I think that's where they are. And I think when you listen to your podcast, you can feel like they're right on that edge. And so I think even right now, again, we talked about some of the challenges with the current state of affairs that are exacerbating or making that worse. So people's rents are going up. Um, food prices are up. Gas prices are up because of COVID. There's a lack of caregivers. A lot of these families are saying, even if there was somebody or I did have round the clock help, there's nobody that comes in or it's inconsistent. And then I have to end up doing it. And so I think it comes back to the program that you're talking about will relieve some of that burden. So those things that I just mentioned, if the parent caregiver can be paid to do that, it really, it helps with the bills. It helps with their consistency of care uh, by somebody who knows the child really well, and it's a consistent person. And I think a bunch of the folks have said that. So I think that that, that piece of it, is really important. And then some other work we talked about working with other groups that can work on some of the issues around food and rent, et cetera, for these families would be, would be super helpful for them. Uh, I, and I would like to also say we talked about Katie and then every single one of these 
podcasts that you've done, I'm just in awe in how resilient these folks are. I think that's the good part of it, that they're very resilient. So if we can just give them a little bit more. Just give them a little support. A little relief and support. It's really just going to be like a slingshot. They're going to be able to really get out the other things. And I think if we can partner with other folks to relieve those other burdens just a little bit, I think it'll it'll help people a lot. Absolutely. And just in case someone who is listening hasn't listened to the previous episodes, well, the family CNA program is what we're talking about, which allows parents to go get certified as certified nursing assistants. And then what would normally be a home health nurse that comes and cares for their child in the home, these nurses can actually delegate tasks to the parents so that the parents can be paid as caregivers. And what this actually does is it allows the parents to have a job because a lot of the times when a, if a nurse doesn't show up, they have to leave their job or there hasn't been a nurse in months or even years. I've heard that piece about the programs. Some of the other things that families talked about is the appropriate training. That's a hurdle. Sometimes uh, Spanish speaking. So if the parents speak Spanish and they're caring for their child, well, that's a lot easier than having a nurse in there that doesn't. So there's some other struggles that your program really helps with that education piece, the language barrier. Also, earlier I talked about living on the edge. So the other side of that is people who live in, in poverty, certain racial groups, people that lack insurance, they lack access to health care and other services. And that's what might lead to the premature birth that leads to needing a trach and a feeding tube or not knowing or expecting you might have a child with a genetic syndrome or a, a birth defect or a heart defect. We heard from that family. And so you're unprepared. So that leads to living on the edge. And, and then, uh, you know, the other piece is even getting caregivers to go into those neighborhoods, right? So that can be a roadblock too. Like people don't want to go into that service area, unfortunately. So I think, again, that's what makes the program strong that you're advocating for is it also eliminates all some of those other barriers that are even beyond sort of this living on the edge concept. It's, it's all those other little pieces, right? That I learned when I went to West Philly and I saw what it was like in the neighborhood and what people struggled with in that urban landscape. And it gives you a, a different view. And again, another view of this program and why it's so important to, to have that. Like from your take for someone that doesn't understand how capable are these parents already? And, and can you kind of paint a picture for like what they're already doing even without the program? Well, I think the, the parents, they, the, the parents are often at the bedside when their child is sick and they're in the hospital, they <clears throat> learn things very quickly. They're capable of learning how to do these things. And I think when you, when you love a child, there's a motivation there when it's your child and you love them. There's just a natural urge to care for your child and you're going to do anything right to take care of your child. And I think parents are very motivated to do that care and they don't want really want somebody often to do that care and all of the time they might want some respite so they can get out they can they have other children they can give them some attention 
and meet their needs or their spouse or their partner or whatever, but they really want to do that care. They really don't want other people to do that care. Yeah. And if they do, the cool thing about this program is they could literally, if say they have 40 hours of nursing, they can say, I'd like to do 20 and I would like a nurse to come in the other 20. And it allows them to do that. And I know for the families, this doesn't matter as much, but for the state and for people listening that need to understand how this program works, it's actually hour for hour, a lower cost to the state to have a parent there than have a nurse there. So it's actually saving the state money. So it's a continuity of care for the child. It's a just a little bit of extra support for the family. And it's actually dollar for dollar cheaper for the state. And we've also seen in states like Colorado that it can actually keep kiddos out of the hospital because they don't have different nurses coming in, bringing in disease or not understanding their care. With COVID, we didn't even touch on that piece of it. Yeah. That people don't want the caregiver for coming in. And some of the caregivers are like, I don't want to go into a home where I don't know if people are vaccinated or they might be sick. And then just start in the pediatric vaccines. We've just started those. So they're like, if there are kids around, even if the parents are vaccinated, it's it's another one of those roadblocks. Right. And nurses have been leaving the nursing field and not working because they do or don't want to be vaccinated or they're just burnt out. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that at your facility as well? Absolutely. Some of the older nurses have decided to retire early. Some nurses have decided to leave the bedside and do other type of nursing activities, which are also much needed. So we've had some of that. And then we talked about uh, nurses and other healthcare providers. There was a pause in training and producing healthcare workers during the pandemic. So there's actually fewer people around that you can hire into position. Right. There's no new nurses. There's less nurses being produced because they had to put a hold on the schooling and things like that. Right. And some of the nurses that come out didn't get as much clinical time. So we're, we're, we have training programs where we take new graduate nurses and, and train them to be at the bedside and do really great care. And one of the things you were touching on is sort of that some hours for care and then the, the parents get some relief from another healthcare provider coming in, a nurse coming in and caring. And so I think the other the other piece that I've heard from the families on the podcast and I've seen is when they get that time off, a lot of times they're coordinating appointments, making appointments, maybe taking care of their other children. Another thing is that a lot of times and none of the parents have talked about this, but I know it's a struggle a lot of uh, these families end up being on the Medicaid program. They qualify for insurance. And then some of that time is to re-enroll, depending on the state. You have to go back. You have to give them paperwork and go through this whole process so you don't have a discontinuation in your insurance or your nutritional support through the nutrition programs or formula support, whether it's insurance or through the state. So those are things these families have to do all the time. And so we're, if, they're, if they never get any respite, it, it's hard to, to do those things. And, and it, it reminds me of back to Katie, moved from Arizona up to Colorado. Like I was having this panic attack, like Katie, like we got to set you up with doctors and got to make sure Jake has formula. And, you know, she took care of all that. But I just remember even that transition, if you move out of state or if you're even in the same state and you move from 
one city to another, you got to get all set up again. So just thinking about that for a family, those transitions are a big deal too. I think the parents are like, that's another hat that they're wearing that people don't realize is they are basically like an operations director for a logistics healthcare company, Correct. a little small one, but they're still doing it on top of being mom, being caregiver, trying to balance a job. If that's even possible, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. It is. It really is. So when we talk about advocacy, you know, on this podcast, we've had family members, we've had clinicians, we've had organizers. And through that process, I've realized that advocacy can mean different things, to different people. What does advocacy mean in your world to you? Well, for me, it's really that sense of a community of people that really want to address an issue that they really care about that's in their heart. I think that's what it really comes down to. And I used to be really afraid to do it, to get out there and do it. And we talked about the American Academy of Pediatrics in the Arizona chapter and I think through being involved with that, I really got some really good training and experience with advocating, especially when you feel like you're not going to win that battle. And we've, we've had parents on that have talked about their advocacy struggles, and it's sort of like you always want to give up before you even start. I've learned some things over time that, that, have, that have worked, or a series of things that I think if you apply them, you can, you can have success. And we've had a few things that were a little bit easier and some things that were, were challenging. But some of the key things are like, if you're going to meet with people to do advocacy, you really, when you're meeting in person, you want to have three to five talking points. And I'm talking like, if you're going to meet with like a legislator, either local in your state or a state senator or your representative in the house, We've done it locally. I've done it locally here in Phoenix, in, in Scottsdale. And then I've gone to Washington a few times to really advocate or, or do, done a combination of both. And really having some specific talking points that are the key points about what you're advocating for. And then having some more uh, detailed information that you can leave behind with somebody you're talking to. So give them the big picture, the big points, and then leave them more information that they can go through because they'll often take it to their leader. You often don't meet with your legislator, you meet with their staff. So you want to have a nice professional discussion, high level, give them leave behinds, and then have a develop a really good relationship with them. Even if you don't see eye to eye, it's important to communicate back after, be persistent with them, and develop relationships over time, no matter what you might be advocating for. I think that's really, really important to do that. And and the other big piece is to find community partners that believe in what you believe in and having them be part of a bigger team mm. um, to advocate. So you might have other agencies in Arizona and other states that, that are into this training program and having the parents be certified nursing assistants and do the care and can help you advocate for money and budget and making that business case that you talk about of how it saves money and provides probably much higher quality of care overall when you look at the big picture that we talked about. Uh, and I will say, you know, a couple 
battles in Arizona a number of years ago. We were we were advocating for uh, expanding the access or Medicaid program, and really felt like it was uh, the legislature was really not in favor of it. We really, again, we stuck to our points about it. We talked about how many kids and families rely on it in Arizona and that are uninsured and how much more costly that was. And then we partnered with a lot of agencies around Arizona and the Arizona chapter of pediatrics. We ended up getting the expansion. It was narrow. We had to give a little bit on the overall picture, but we got it done. And then that still exists today, even though the funding, the way it was supposed to be funded change. They committed to it and that was a big win. And then the the second one was a few years ago when the Affordable Care Act was up for being it went back to Congress for another vote to to really change it, get rid of it. I had done advocacy with our state senators and I did a lot of work with Senator McCain's office over the years, both locally and in Washington. So we had been there to talk about gun safety, supplemental nutrition assistance for family programs, immunizations. We had developed a relationship with his staff. And when that was coming up, we met with staff in Washington. We left them some key points. We um, left them detailed information. And then the other piece when you're developing a relationship and advocating, it's really good to know the person you're advocating to. So with In this case with Senator McCain, he had a love for the military and for Native American populations. And so when we met with his staff and with him and with the leave behinds, we let them know if it was reversed, the effect it was going to have on military families and our Native American peers across Arizona. And that really resonated. So having that relationship resonated, and if you remember that late vote when he when he gave the thumbs down and you know that was a, a really big advocacy win and so I think being consistent with those pieces can even though you don't think you can you're seeing eye to eye some sometimes it's uh, very very successful absolutely well thank you for sharing all of that because I know it's sometimes the little things I can go into a room and just be like blah. Yeah. You know, and so having those points and then something to hand out after is something that I definitely will take with me. And then also, I, th- I think one of the messages I received is just being being happy that you're making leaps, steps. It might not be leaps forward, but steps forward right. and just being happy and celebrating those wins. And finding that angle. I know you're going from state to state. So every state is a little bit different, but maybe understanding in a particular state, something that might resonate, a population in that state, and maybe the interests of that legislator, what they're interested in, and who supports them. Is that a group of people that would resonate, or is there a topic that would resonate with them? Absolutely. And when you think about the military thing for legislators who would care about that, there are military families, even on episode number two, that will get sent out of the state. So they'll be in Colorado receiving this program and then they get sent to another state and they actually have military has pretty good Mm -hmm. um, coverage for medically fragile children, but that program is only available in Colorado. So families that leave Colorado are like, send me back. 
they literally are like, mm-hmm. send me back. And it's sad to think that people, some families have even left their homes to go to Colorado. It's crazy to think that families have to leave their homes to go get the care that they want. Thank you for all of that. Because I, in the scheme of things, I'm very new in my advocacy. And so I'm always taking in as much as I can to learn. So, you know, with all the work that you've done at the hospitals and with your advocacy, it can, just like you were saying, it can kind of get your little wins, but there's a lot of just getting beat down sometimes and not things feeling like they're not moving forward. So what actually keeps you going? Again, I think for for me, it's just being in service to people. So I think that's just the key thing for me. I mean, I'm, I'm in service to folks and sometimes things go well and sometimes they don't go well, but really having that focus of serving other people, whether it's in healthcare or in the community or it's my neighbor, I think that's what it's all about. There's always a good way to to serve other people and it it always feels good. Maybe you don't get that big win, but you feel like your heart's in the right place and you're you're doing the right things. For me, that's what it's all about. I always think like there's nothing actually that feels better than being of service to someone. Like they're like I can't think if someone gives me like the greatest gift if someone's like, I got you a brand new car. That doesn't actually feel the way that it feels to be of service. No, but would be a service if you go and you pick up an old person in your neighborhood here and take them to the grocery store at that car that you got, right? So it's that's one uh, something else somebody taught me is like if you're feeling down and something bad happened, just go out and do something good for somebody else and you'll forget all about it. You'll be in a, on a different wavelength. I love that. And so one other thing I want to ask while I have you here cuz you know there's a new there's a new level to your career. And you've gotten certified as a healthcare peer coach and a master physician development coach. And, you know, we have a lot of people listening who are caregivers. And I guess from all the things that you've been learning in that world, what is something that the listeners can take home with them? Everybody can learn to be, to do peer support for somebody else. So when you talk about Katie and some of the other people on this podcast, I think what they can do is again, reach out to other people that might be in the same boat. And it's very easy to connect with people, listen to them, ask a lot of questions, and help them plan what they need to do. We call it CLAP. So you connect with people, which all these folks on the podcast are all great at it. You know, listening, people just want someone to listen to them, ask a lot of questions, understand where they're at, and then it might open up their mind to what they need to do or what they can do to help, again, relieve their burden. And some of it might be just they just want to talk about it. They don't need a solution. But that's really what peer support is or the initial work I did in peer support. And then the coaching part for physicians is is really uh, similar. I mean, they're struggling a lot with the pandemic with all the changes in healthcare. So a lot of the work around that is helping them find that balance and helping them get back to thinking about what they love, about what they do and what's in their heart and getting back to that and really focusing on that. So all the other stuff doesn't really have that negative impact. That's really what it's all about. Awesome. I love it. Well, while I have you here and we're sitting here together is there anything else that you'd like to share? Anything on your heart that you'd just like to bring up while I have this have you on this space? 
You know, I guess for me, it's just listening to everybody's stories. I'm, I mean, it's so grateful to be part of this podcast. I feel like such a novice compared to all these parents, no matter what experience I have. But just being grateful to them for their, their commitment to the kids, their commitment to the, the program that you're trying to spread across the U.S., which is really awesome. The people that want to advocate together and just, I think, moving forward together, I feel really excited about it. Me too. Well, we're really grateful to have had you here and for sharing your knowledge with us and for being of service. That's how I've always felt from you from when we met in Sedona at your conference, actually. Yeah. So thank you for being you and thank you for being a tough advocate. And for everyone listening, thank you for listening. And until next time. Hello, Tough Advocates. It's a new year, and we really hope you enjoyed this new episode with Dr. Pope. We wanted to remind you to please subscribe wherever you're listening to help support this community. And we also wanted to remind you that we are coming out with a brand new video on our Unforgotten Families YouTube channel, where we are sharing a story of a beautiful family who receives the Family CNA program in Colorado, and you'll get to really see what it looks like and how life has completely changed because of this program. We're very grateful to have you on this journey with us. We appreciate you being a tough advocate, and we look forward to seeing you on the next episode.